0: Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful we're able to sing that truth to remind ourselves of that truth that you are our living hope. Now and into eternity. Lord, you you came as a baby, you lived a perfect life so that our sins could be placed on you and taken to the cross. But then victory and hope comes from you didn't stay dead. You rose from the grave, giving us the greatest hope of all, and that is the hope of eternal life with you through faith in you because of the salvation which you and you alone provided. Lord, we thank you for that reminder. We thank you for this opportunity to be able to come and remind ourselves together as brothers and sisters in Christ that we have a common hope in you. Lord, let us remember that and let us live each day in light of that hope. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Man, aren't you thankful
1: to be here this morning? Yeah. We get to sing these truths and I pray that they ring true in your heart. But uh, throughout the course of the week, I don't know if you ever do this, but uh, I'll reflect on our time here. Uh, and the voices that we hear um, the, the way that we sing and I think about what it's going to be like in heaven not just that we're going to get a vocal tune up um, but the fact that we get to rejoice like this and it continues in that experience uh, being able to respond back to the king with perfect hearts, with uh, perfect thoughts, with perfect words how awesome will that be? We're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're still in the series, The Darkest Night. These are the moments before Christ goes to the cross, his final thoughts that he's sharing with his men, some episodes that Luke records for us so that we will see Christ's heart as he is headed there. And we see some significant things. We have watched him uh, share with them that he is about to die. We've watched him share with his men uh, this special supper where he tells them of the bread and of the cup and says, I'm about to start something that is different, that is brand new, a new covenant that's in my blood. Uh, You are here for this, men. And he is sharing with them that they are right on the precipice of a significant thing. They're unaware of what it could be, Um, But we also see with all of this urgency the tenderness of Christ. At this moment, Christ begins to speak to uh, his men these truths. In fact, he's about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will literally be trembling before what is about to happen. I can't imagine, uh, if you think about the moment where you have been most impacted, where there was the most adrenaline flowing through your body, When you're most energized or concerned uh, about something, a significant surgery or a significant transition in your life, and you think about how you speak to the people around you in those urgent moments when you're under duress, right? Christ speaks to his men in these moments when he is under great duress, when he is going to go to the cross for us, and he knows all the weight of what that is. He is going in that moment... To speak to his men with tenderness, with clarity, he kindly lays out for them what it is they are to be about. And even when they miss the point, his grace is there. This is a time where Christ just seems even sweeter uh, as we watch him. Luke chapter 22, I want you to turn there, verses 31 through 38. Let's stand and read this passage together. He's just uh, settled their dispute about who is the greatest. And he looks at Simon and says these words. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Once you are uh, returned, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times, denied that you have known me. And he said to them, well, when I sent you out with a money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and to buy one. For I tell you, this which is written must be fulfilled. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. Do you believe they had this moment together? You may be seated. Father, as we... Take a look at this passage, I pray that you would open our eyes and cause us to think rightly. Uh, Help us to see not just what happened in that moment, but to see ourselves, principles that come from that moment that should also teach us. The things that Christ said to his men, the way in which he said them were intended, they were recorded for us to understand, and we pray that you would help us to do that now, in Christ's name, amen. In your notes, A.W. Tozer said, it's a significant thing The Bible gives no record of a coward ever being cured of his malady. No timid soul ever grew into a man of courage. Peter is sometimes cited as an exception, but there is nothing in his record that would mark him as a timid man either before or after Pentecost. He did touch the borderline once or twice. It's true. For the most part, he was a man of such explosive courage that he was forever in trouble because of his boldness. How desperately the church at this moment needs men of courage. It's too well known to need repetition. Fear broods over the church like some ancient curse. Fear for our living. Fear for our jobs. Fear of losing popularity. Fear of each other. These are the ghosts that haunt the men who stand today in places of church leadership. Many of them, however, win a reputation for courage by repeating safe and expected things with comical daring. Yet self-conscious courage is not the cure. To cultivate the habit of calling a spade a spade may merely result in us making a nuisance of ourselves and doing a lot of damage in the process. The ideal seems to be a quiet courage that is not aware of its own presence. It draws its strength each moment from the indwelling spirit and is hardly aware of self at all. Such a courage will be patient, well-balanced, and safe from extremes. May God send a baptism of such courage for us. Peter's great desire was to stand out, to leave his mark as a man of courage. And Jesus told him he would fail before he would succeed. Now remember our context They've just had this great meal. Jesus has just entered into the debate about who is the greatest. They were trying to proclaim that. I really believe that the reason they were having that discussion about who is the greatest was they began to look at the fact that somebody was going to betray Jesus. They looked into their own hearts and they said, you know what? Could it be me? He didn't identify which one of them it was verbally by saying, it's you, Judas, Judas gets up and walks out. We identified last week that a Judas spirit is always up and walking around. That was nothing new to them. So Judas leaves, and they're all looking inward, wondering, could it be me? And in a moment, trying to prove to themselves and to everybody in the room that it's not them that was going to be the failure. It was not them that was going to go and uh, betray Christ. They all begin looking around saying, in fact, I'm greater than you. This discussion of who is the greatest came out of their own internal weakness. They were concerned. Christ begins to look at them and identify really what is great, that they needed to be servants. And now we enter into this passage. Simon is rattled. He's been everywhere in just a few moments, excited about the kingdom and everything that's going to come, then proclaiming his own greatness, then getting shot down. Peter can't handle it. And he's a lot like us, isn't he? He wants some declaration of love. He wants some declaration that he's okay. He wants somehow to prove to Jesus, but you know that I love you, right? And that's where we enter in. In fact, Christ already knows his heart. And he says right there, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. It's an interesting thing. At this uh, point, verse 31, that word you in the Greek is you all. Satan has asked for permission to sift you all, every single one of you, like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that's singular, specifically Peter. Peter, I have prayed for you by name. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Every single person in here has been tempted and struggled and failed. Is that true? Anybody not in that category? (laughs) We'd all like to meet you this morning. Everyone gets tested, but you can't look around and say, well, everybody struggles. Everybody struggles, it's true. But Christ knows you by name. Everybody struggles, but your struggles are a personal offense to the living God. Do you know that? You have personally done things that will get between you and your Father and will ruin that relationship. They will get in the way of you flourishing you personally. So yes, everybody struggles, but you can't look around and says, well, everybody's doing it. That doesn't work with your father, either in this place or there. That doesn't work. You personally are struggling. And Christ looks at him and says, every single one of you is going to get tested. And Peter, I know your struggle that you're about to face. It's going to be intense. And I have prayed a couple things for you. I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And when once you have turned again, that you strengthen your brothers. Christ was praying for him. All get tested, but each one's failure is their own. I want you to understand something right at the very beginning. It says Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Simon's bragging, well, not only am I the greatest, but what? I would go to death for you. I would go to prison. Jesus ultimately tells him, yeah, you'll get to do both. All right? You'll get to go to prison and die for me, but your strength does not scare Satan. Do you know that? None of you in here scare him. That's an important thing to understand. Satan had received permission. The only thing stopping Satan in your life is God. It is not your power. we got to let that settle, all right? You may think that you have some magical ability to run away from him or argue with him or overcome him in your own strength. You have nothing. There is nothing in you that causes him fear in your personal strength. The only thing that causes him to run is that which is in you. That's Christ in you that causes that fear. The only thing stopping Satan is the living God. He's asked permission. Once he gets it, he can bring it. Peter's declaration didn't stop him. Remember, uh, back in Mark chapter 9, we see it earlier um, in uh, Luke as well, but back in Mark chapter 9, uh, when the men were encountering a demon-possessed kid, and the father comes to Jesus and says, they've tried and tried, and they can't do anything. And Jesus looks at them and says, oh, you faithless generation. In Mark 9, 27 through 29, he says, this one does not come out but by Prayer. It's not their ability. It's not your ability. It's not because uh, of your strength, men. You've got to ask God to do this. We see the same thing later on in uh, Acts nineteen as a bunch of guys see what's going on in the early church, and they encounter once again somebody who is afflicted by demons. And the seven sons of Skeva think they're going to start a business. They're going to hang out a shingle, going and helping people that have been demonized. Okay, and they run into one actual. They had had some faulty success by manufacturing um, their fame and they begin to go out and they run into a guy who actually has been afflicted with demons and they begin to shout out, well, uh, in Jesus' name we remove you and they want to do this to put their power on display and the demon looks at them and says through this man, well, I know Jesus and I've heard of Paul, but who are you? And he whips him They are thrashed and sent away. Why? They have no power in themselves, and there's no magic spell that will remove them. It is either God or no one. It's His power. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. Greater is He that is in you. Have you ever heard somebody make the declaration in their faith when they were encountering some sin that's happened in the culture or some hardship that they're about to face? And they say, well, that just isn't going to happen. My failure just isn't going to happen here. Have you ever heard that? Let me say it this way. Have you ever declared that from your own lips? Well, yeah, they may fall in that area, but I would never fall in that area. You know that declaration means nothing. Every single one of us would fail if we're clinging to our own ability. That is the hard reality for Peter. Here's a guy who was chosen to walk with Jesus for three years. He walks with him and has great success. He is bold. He's declarative. He is excited about Christ. There's nobody out there in the world that doesn't know he's a follower of Jesus, right? That gets proven in just a chapter later. Just a few short verses. Everyone knows Peter, but his boldness and his strength meant nothing. His yieldedness will mean everything. It's not about how strong you are, it's how yielded you are that matters. Philip Riken, in his commentary on this passage, talks about a moment where a good friend of his was coming down from uh, preaching uh, at a conference. And there were a lot of people there, and his good friend was a well known pastor in the United States. He was met by a group of people uh, from a TV station someplace, and they were doing an interview, and, and they were talking about some current trends that were happening in Christianity, some marital failures that had happened with great leaders. And they asked him, Sir, what would, it cause, what would cause you to fail? He says, Well, I don't know uh, what. He said, I'm sure there's a weakness in my life, he says, but I'll tell you one place that I'm never going to fail is my marriage. And six months later, splashed across the screens reported by that same TV station, um, his friend would fall into moral failure in his marriage. Six months later, proclaiming his own strength. It was shocking, and he says, and in that moment, he realized, there is no place that is safe if I'm trusting me. Every place should be a place where you walk without fear if you're trusting Christ. Amen? If it's Christ in you, you're strong. If it's you... That's strong you're about to fail Simon Satan's demanded permission to sift you and I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail why because you're going to fall and you're going to fall hard Uh, a second thing I want you to know before we leave this this point is that we are most likely to reject God's word when it exposes our sin we are most likely to reject God's word when it exposes our sin Peter wasn't just being brash. He wasn't just being intense when he was looking at Jesus, saying, look, I would follow you to jail. He was actually rejecting Jesus's words. He's rejecting the word of God. God was telling him, you're about to do this. And Peter says, no, you're wrong. How does that turn out for you? Any place in Scripture? That never turns out well. He didn't like what was exposed. He didn't like the visible way that this was pointed out, and he did not want to deal with it as Christ would have him deal with it. Uh, George Sweeting tells the story of a uh, a princess in the jungle in the heart of an uncivilized people. She was a chieftain's daughter and had been told the entire time that she was the most beautiful woman in the entire tribe. She had no mirror to view herself. She had been convinced of her unparalleled beauty. Then one day an exploring party traveled through that part of Africa and the princess was given a mirror as a gift. For the first time in her life, she was able to see her own reflection. She immediately went over to a giant rock and smashed the mirror. Why? For the first time in her life, she actually knew the truth. Everyone in the tribe had been lying to her because of her position. She had never been able to see herself accurately. When she saw herself, she was indeed not the prettiest person in the tribe. She was ugly and she refused to receive it. Is it possible that there are times where in reading the Word of God, you begin to see something about yourself that you do not like? Have you ever heard scripture read and known that there was an area of conviction in your life that the people on the right and the left of you were aware of and you become irritated with the passage of scripture rather than repentive in your spirit. Peter instantly hears what Christ says and he knows it's true. There is a weakness That whole idea of going to prison or going to his death, he was just being brash. I wish I could do that. I wish I had that courage. I wish I had that strength is what he's saying. But he's declaring it as if it's true. I don't want anyone here to think I'm weak. Christ says, let me point out something. You are weak. And until your strength is found in me alone, you won't be the guy who has courage. You need me. We quite often try to explain away God's Word um, so that our actions are seen in a different light. We'll say things like, well, did God really mean that? Did God really say? Have you ever heard that phrase before? Genesis chapter 3, that's Satan's words to the couple. Did God really say? No, God, you can't mean that. Peter's actually begun the first stage of dismissal, the first stage in that denial of Christ started with denying that his words were true. Everyone gets tested. Everyone, each one has their failure as their own. You have to deal with the Lord in your response to scripture. But there's a second thing that's really important to see here. Notice verse 32, but I have prayed for you, Christ is speaking, that your faith may not fail and that once you have turned again that you would strengthen your brothers Failure does not equal forsaken. How thankful are you for that? Christ says, you're going to fail, and man, it was nice knowing you, Peter. It's over. Our friendship is done. In two hours, you won't know. admit that you know me, and I will never again see you. He doesn't say that. In fact, Christ says, this is about to happen. I've already foreseen what's going to happen, and the restoration that you're going to experience. Can you imagine How much tenderness is required in that moment to look at somebody who is going to reject you, deny you, say, I have nothing to do with him. In that culture, the ultimate of spite. One passage says that Peter will go around stomping and even cursing, saying, I do not know him. Why do you keep saying that? His denial is absolute. And Christ looks at that moment and says, when you've been restored, You help restore your brother because no one's going to go lower than you. All right? No one's going farther. You help them to see what restoration looks like. You remind them of my character. And with kindness, he tells him that. Jesus had already foreseen and forgiven tomorrow's failures. Do you know that he does that for us? This is a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. Uh, Ephesians... Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 say this, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Spirit of God comes into our life the moment that we respond to the gospel seals us. In other words, it's a guarantee you're going to reach heaven. You're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way, but the Spirit of God will begin to work that out in your life. Your future failure does not cut you off from the goodness of God. Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside. Doing what? It says here, nailing it to the cross. All of that failure set aside. Hebrews ten twenty four. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Listen to that sentence. He has perfected for all time, finished, sealed, done, those who are being sanctified. In other words, those who are still working it out. You are already seen in heaven as complete, even though right now you know you're still in process. Aren't you thankful for that? You might make a mess of tomorrow, but God's got eternity taken care of. R.C. Sproul, when he was uh, counseling somebody, had run into this concern. In fact, it came up so often in the area where he was pastoring. He wrote a little note to his church. He said, uh, If our repentance includes turning to the finished work of Christ, if it includes trusting in his life and atoning death, the promises of God is that we will indeed be forgiven. 1 John 1, 9. Because of his promises and because they are true, we can and must trust them. We do, of course, continue to sin. Satan, the accuser, delights to make much of this. He loves to rub our faces in our sins and to tell us sinners that we are surely, that we cannot be saved. If our response to this kind of assault is to deny the reality of our sin, he wins. If our response, on the other hand, is to wallow in our sin. He wins. The right response is to say, I am a sinner, worse even than you know, Satan, but my father sees me as pure and whole, a spotless bride because he has dressed me in the perfect righteousness of his son. Telling the devil, I'm no good, invites more attack. Telling the devil, I am in fact good, invites more attack. Telling the devil, Jesus is righteous and I am in him, will make him flee. When we diminish our sin, we rest in ourselves. When we despair in our sins, we diminish his grace. Our calling is to own our sin, to plumb its depths, and to know that God's grace in Christ is greater still. Do you believe that's true? He's forgiven us. He's already seen tomorrow's failure. But also, we notice in this passage that the promise of forgiveness does not remove the need of repentance. Repentance. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, there's that word, once you have repented, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you that your strength will not fail. Hey, I'm going to see you through this. And once you have repented, you strengthen your brothers. Once your heart has changed. Repentance is important. I just want to let that soak for a moment. We love resting in the promises of God. We love the fact that he restores sinners. We love the promise that he has taken care of eternity. We hate the idea that we need to repent, right? Anybody just make a habit of it every day, just repenting of stuff you did? You just tell people, I took that extra dollar. I did that thing. I said those words. I participated in that action. Repentance is hard on us. Why do we need to repent? Repentance restores our fellowship. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll take care of the trail. But it also comes with restored fellowship. The, re- the relationship we have here leads to a relationship that we have here. It restores our fellowship with God. John MacArthur was talking about speaking in Kiev, uh, the Ukraine, and he said that he spoke, as uh, he quite often will do, for a long time. He got there just after the doors had been opened to the gospel once again. He was invited to come to a church, and they said, we really like long sermons, can you provide one? And he said, no problem. (laughs) He said he, he spoke from about 9 to 1130, and at the end... The pastor comes up and he says, "Uh, you get them ready and I'm going to call the people to repent. And he says, well, I don't know what you're you're meaning. Um, He says, will you run it? And so the pastor says, I will. So he came up at the end and said, thank you. He said, anybody that's under conviction is a result of this word. Will you come forward? And the people began to come forward. And the pastor not only saw them come forward, but he grabbed a microphone and he says, repent. Tell us what the problem is. And they began to turn around, and they would look at the congregation and say, this is the thing that I was doing, this is the thing I was convicted of, and this is what God's leading me to do instead. And they began to rejoice and to shout and to thank God that their heart had been broken. He says, it happened one, and then another, and then another, and then another, and then most of the church is up in front, and they're rejoicing and repenting. He says, it goes on, for two more hours, they were repenting and rejoicing that somebody had been touched. Not just by the message, but that the Spirit of God had led them to look at their brothers and say, I've done these things. Will you forgive me? I'm sorry. What kind of heart does it take to do those things? Their fellowship with God led to a restoration with each other. Repentance restores our fellowship with God, but also repentance restores the Spirit's control. Your ability to be filled with the Spirit is contingent on you being faithful. You're already His. You're His for eternity, but your ability to respond in the Spirit and do what God would have you do uh, implies that you're not quenching Him. You're quenching Him if you haven't repented. If you haven't gone before Him and said, Lord, I, this has been coming between you and I. 1818, Ignaz Semenweiss discovered something. He said, uh, one out of six of every births were resulting in what they called uh, cradle fever, fever where the mother would die. One out of six of every single birth in that area. And, and uh, he's a Hungarian um, doctor and he says, I think I know what the problem is. In order to learn their craft, the doctors every single morning were called to go and to do cadaver work. They would actually work on cadavers to study anatomy and to, to become better doctors. And they would go directly from that in to deliver babies. One out of six of the times. Ignaz would go on to deliver well over 18,000 babies and only have 100 mothers die in his time. His standard of care was so far and above everybody else's. And he says, all I've done differently from all of you is I've washed my hands. He says, you are killing these mothers by coming in with unwashed hands. How much is that like us when we're trying to help other people that are even in the church with us today? We come in and with unwashed hands, we try to reach out and help somebody else and tell them to depend on Christ when we, in fact, haven't repented of things that have come between us and him the entire time. Now, if it feels like I'm driving this point home, I intend to. I think the lack of effectiveness of the church today is not because Christ has lost his power. I don't think it's because the word of God has become irrelevant. I don't think it's because there is something that that is just lost in translation over the period of time. Like somehow it has changed. I think the lack of power in the church today is we have unrepentant hearts before God. We have things that are going on inside our life that is getting between us and him, and it's infecting our relationship sideways. We have to put on a mask. Christ says instead, wash your hands. It restores our fellowship. It restores the Spirit's control, but also repentance removes Satan's handle. Gary Richmond. Uh, This is a guy that has worked uh, with animals in a couple of different scenarios, and one time he worked alongside a snake handler at a zoo. They were in the process of trying to release a king cobra, and in order to release it, they said there's one important part of the process that they had to to do. They took the cobra into a separate room. They had a couple of people get together, and they popped its mouth open, and they filled that front of his mouth with uh, all of these gauze uh, and tissues until the venom from that cobra had been fully released into those tissues and they would throw it away. And he asked him, well, why, why do you get rid of all that venom when you're going to release it into the wild and, and you're just throwing it away? You're not using it for anything. And the declaration made to him was that more people are bit in trying to release a cobra than in trying to catch one. More people are killed. How true is that in our own life? How many people have struggled over and over and over again with a chronic addiction or a problem with sin? And it just seems every time you're trying to let it go, it bites you and the venom gets you even worse. You want to know one of the answers for that? How you get rid of it? You repent, you declare to other people, this is what I have done. Instead of secretly stuffing it away and trying to release that snake in some way when nobody else will be able to see it. All of the venom gets removed. It has no power. Satan has nothing to hang over your head. You're uh, not afraid of being exposed. You let go of that thing, and it is removed. Between you and the Lord, you have admitted, this is sin, I don't want it anymore. You've told others, these are the things that I've been about, and no longer will it have a handle on you. Repentance brings you back into a right relationship. It settles you. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, once you have repented, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In that state, we are the people who are most useful to others that are struggling. Amen? We need to repent. Um, I'm out of time. I'm not going to pull a John MacArthur this morning. <laughs> 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 Second service is canceled. <laughs> let, uh, let me just make a couple of observations here because this is important. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. And then, without... Working through it, he turns to the rest of them and says, when I sent you out without a money belt and bag and sandals, you didn't lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And he said, but now whoever has a money belt should take it along, likewise a bag, and whoever has a sword should sell his coat and buy one. Now they messed this up. And they think that he's asking them to get ready for war. He was not. He was just saying, you know what? The special honor that you had when we were walking together earlier, you will no longer have. People aren't going to step around us and think this is wonderful. They're going to step at you because of the message you carry. It's important to understand when you're reading Scripture, there are some of God's promises that are time-specific. This is just back in Luke chapter 10 that he had made this statement to them to not carry a money bag with them. And now, just a few short chapters later, he's telling them, you're going to need to make sure you supply everything yourself. Different stage. If they were to go back and say, Well, I'm going to act like the disciples, if we were to say that, we have to pick which passage, this one or Luke chapter 10. You can't just declare, I'm claiming the promise right here, because he told them, Well, now it's different. That was for a short season. We can learn principles from those passages, but not every promise in that season is directly for us. We have to look at why Christ said that or why God said that at that time and to who. Some are time specific, some are people specific. We see Genesis seventeen six, the promise of a fruitful family given to Abraham. That was a specific promise to Abraham that becomes a messianic promise. It is something that is significant for us to unpack. If we grab that promise for us, we're looking for um, what uh, our retreat speaker called a, a name-it-and-claim-it or a blab-it-and-grab-it theology. You can't just go grab a scripture and claim it for yourself. You need to look at, there are principles that God wants to teach us. It is useful for us to be sure, but not every single promise is for you. It's possible to hear his word and miss the point. The key here is that special season season of protection would be over. And we see in the book of Acts that that's true It doesn't mean that they wouldn't flourish. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't experience his grace and joy. It just means the special protection they were under was no longer. He's saying, get ready. He doesn't leave us without a warning. Doesn't leave us unprepared. So how should we wrap up? As we look at this passage and we apply this even to our own life, we see what is said to Peter. We see what's said to those men. But are there any principles that we should take in? I just have a couple of questions. And the first one is this. Have you been living the Christian life, by your own strength? Evaluate that. Have you been living by your own strength? Are you making declarations? Are you hanging on? Is there a lot of sweat and worry in your faith that God may not come through? Is there a lot of concern and consternation, or are you settled? Are you abiding? Do you sense his peace? If you don't sense his peace, if you don't sense that you're abiding, that you're settled in him, you're probably running on your own strength and you need To turn it over to him. Do you find yourself trying to explain away God's word? Are there certain scriptures that convict you and you try to prove to yourself, well, that doesn't mean what he said? Man, that's as old as the garden. Quit it. All right, quit. Let God speak clearly and submit. And final question I would have for you this morning is, uh, when was the last time that you repented? When was the last time before God you actually said, Lord, this is what I've done, I'm sorry? Or that you've gone to someone else and said, this is an area in my life where I've been in failure. I've told the Lord, and now I want to tell you, will you pray for me as I move forward? That is when we become our most useful self. Amen. And it's the hardest thing for us to do. I'll leave you there. Father, will you help us to see how you handled Peter with such tenderness, to see uh, the joy that later on he would experience when he repented, but the horror of realizing that your word was accurate, that what you said to him was true. Father, we... Quite often we'll read the scripture, we will see things that we know are true of ourselves and we will run from them. I pray instead this morning, Father, that you will cause us to be people who yield, people who repent and people who see the fruit of it. We pray in Christ's name, amen.